I want to explain something that's in our text today. Some of you will have a verse 4 in John chapter 5, and then some of you will not have a verse 4. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. And some of your, your Bibles that have a verse 4 say something like, there was a pool and uh, an angel of the Lord would stir the waters and then someone would try to jump into it to be healed by those stirred waters. You might say something like that if you have a verse 4. What I want you to know is that the oldest and the best manuscripts do not contain that statement. Okay, so this is... This is what you need to know. Um, There is uh, a science called textual criticism. Christians who know about original autographs and transcribed manuscripts study these things. And so the original autographs are exactly what like John penned, that the Holy Spirit inspired. John wrote it down. And then what happened is scribes would take John's gospel and then copy it exactly as John had written it, word for word, line for line, very carefully and meticulously, and then they would go and send those copies off to the churches so that the churches could could read the gospel of John. And so there are hundreds and in some cases thousands of transcribed manuscripts. What apparently happened is that a scribe wrote in the side of of one of these manuscripts, these transcribed manuscripts, that phrase about the moving of the waters and the angel of the Lord, and it was was thought that that's the the reason that um, they would jump into the pool as fast as they could. And so over a period of time, that got inserted into some manuscripts. But the oldest and the best manuscripts that are closest to the very original don't contain that statement. That's why your ESV and maybe your New American Standard and a couple of other versions don't even contain that at all. There's just a little note there. And it's a little odd that we go from verse 3 to verse 5, and I didn't want to just talk about that in the middle of the sermon, so I thought I would kind of give you a, uh, a little bit of heads up on that. If you've got any questions about that, any questions about textual criticism, if, you've got any, if you want to be a textual critic, um, don't come talk to me. Um, but if you've got any questions, I can't answer them. Studied that stuff in seminary, so would uh, be more than happy to have a conversation with you about it. Okay, let's now go to the Lord in prayer. Father, You are our Father. Yes, You are our Creator. Yes, You are our Sustainer. Yes, You are our King. You are powerful above us. You sustain us. You you rule over us. You are our Judge. We affirm those realities about you, and those realities are glorious, but Father, it is amazing and wonderful and beautiful that we, like Jesus, your Son, can call you our Father. 
And we approach your throne today as a throne of grace, of fatherly grace. And we say, Lord, we, we have needs, we have struggles. We have strivings, problems, heartaches, and pains. Father, we, we want to bring to you our, our brother and sister, Anthony and Carolyn Taylor, and in particular, their daughter, Jennifer, as they mourn the loss of Jennifer's husband, Glenn. And we just want to plead that your mercy would be deep, that your grace would be great, that they would feel your love and your comfort and, and, and your concern for them. I pray that your Holy Spirit would actively work in their hearts and minds that they may be able to think thoughts and feel feelings that are accurate with who you are and the grace that you provide in their time of need. Father, we pray for those who are struggling in our midst physically today with illness, disease, with sickness that is going around. We want to plead for your mercy to be great and for your power to be demonstrated through and in the sickness and the illness and the disease. And we also, at the same time, plead for your grace to be great, that you would magnify your power and your glory in our struggling lives. Father, we are a family here. And we want to approach your throne as a family and we want to ask you, Lord, to meet us at our place and point of need this morning. We need encouragement. Please provide it. We need correction. Please provide it. We need instruction. Please provide it. We need motivation. Please provide that. We need resolve. Please provide it, Lord. We know that your word is capable to do all of those things and much more. And so we ask you right now as a good and powerful father to supply our every need through your word. We pray in the glorious and sweet name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Laws are good except when they replace grace. Rules are good, except when they replace mercy. Regulations are good, except when they seek to replace the Redeemer. And what we need to know going into John chapter 5 today is that there is a context in 1st century Judaism and first century Jerusalem as a whole as a city that we need to be very aware of. There are two realities that are going on in the city of Jerusalem and in Judaism overall during John chapter 5. And the first is Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping. And over a period of years, the Jews had created all kinds of regulations that were in addition to the regulations 
and the essence of Sabbath keeping that God had laid out in the Pentateuch, in Exodus through Deuteronomy. And I was reading R. Kent Hughes this week, and I just would have to read to you exactly what he wrote concerning how far the Jews had gotten with their rules and regulations on top of what God had already instituted about the Sabbath some centuries before. He said the religious people, in their effort to protect the Sabbath by their own prohibitions, added to Scripture, eventuating in 39 series of laws. There's 39 series of laws on top of the Sabbath commands and principles that God had laid out in His Word. These extra laws constituted a hedge around the Sabbath, but it was a man-made hedge. For example, looking in a mirror was forbidden on the Sabbath. The rationale was that if you looked into the mirror on the Sabbath day and you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out and thus perform work on the Sabbath. You also could not wear your false teeth because if they fell out, you would have to pick them up and you would thus be performing a work on the Sabbath. All kinds of obscure meanings and conversations centered around the Sabbath. You could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath. You couldn't carry one, but you could wear one. That meant if you were upstairs and wanted to take a handkerchief downstairs, you would have to tie it around your neck, walk downstairs, and then untie it to use it. The Jews even debated about a man with a wooden leg. Namely, if his home caught on fire, could he carry his wooden leg out of the house on the Sabbath? Traveling was forbidden on the Sabbath. A journey was limited to 1,000 yards. But if you wanted to extend your walk, you could tie a rope at the end of your street as much as 1,000 yards away. You could then walk 1,000 yards farther because you had extended your household by 1,000 yards. And just to show you the extreme, as if those were normative, but just to show you the extreme, you could spit on the Sabbath. But you had to be careful where you spit. If you spit on the dirt and then scuffed it with your sandal, you would be cultivating the soil and performing work. Spirituality could be determined by where you spit. By popular consent, good religious people were considered list keepers. And even better, list givers. But the Pharisees were champion list givers. Now, what was transpiring in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin would keep tabs on everybody in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day to make sure that nobody was breaking their rules. And so they had folks that were perched out at specific locations. Of course, it had to be close to their homes but specific locations looking and trying to find anybody who was breaking their rules. Now, at the same time that this Sabbath keeping was going on, you also had a major problem of physical suffering. 
This was 2,000 years ago, and the medicinal resources, the professional medical help were at a, at a minimum. So superstition, uh, homemade remedies, and just a lot of suffering was the norm. And so you had people who were lame, blind, deaf, uh, people who were lepers, paralyzed, just folks all over the place who were struggling. And they didn't have a lot of medical help like what we have today. And so they were everywhere and they were searching, hoping, groping for, for help. But just as we do today, which is to our shame, we have a tendency to relegate people who aren't exactly like us, normal people. And so they got relegated into places. And, and so like lepers, they were relegated outside the gates and only they hung around lepers. Well, eventually in Jerusalem, there was, this, there was this, um, this opening in a wall in Jerusalem. It was called the Sheep Gate. And I think it was called the Sheep Gate because there was a small opening in the north, and that's where people who would bring sheep and lambs through the opening to carry them into a pool to cleanse the lambs, the sheep, in these pools in order to pull them out and carry them up to the temple so that they would be a pure and clean sacrifice for worship at the temple. And this sheep gate had these two pools. And at these two pools, there were these five columns, which our text calls colonnades, that had an awning over these five columns. And um, lame people, paralyzed people, blind people, deaf people would hang out underneath these awnings and yes, there was this thought that when, when the spring started moving and there was a mineral sp spring and so there was kind of these, you know, kind of this bottomless source of water and whenever it would rumble, the thought was that if somebody could jump in or get thrown in when the water rumbled, then maybe they might get healed from their sickness or their illness. And they were desperate. And it was kind of a superstition that they, that they tried, but, but, but they were... You know, they didn't have anything else to try, and they were superstitious, and even the, the Jews didn't really offer authentic worship, and so they didn't really come to understand the idea that they could glorify God and love God even in the midst of their struggles. And so what you have going on is this ultra-pharisaical, hyper-Sabbath-keeping and then this plethora of people who are struggling physically with illness and disease and all kinds of malady. That's what's going on. Now with that, let's read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, Bethesda means house of mercy, which, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. 
Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, immediately, the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who's the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. And I am working. Church, we we see a progression here in this narrative. And the progression is the physical healing and then uh, religious hostility, and then spiritual guidance. And we're going to talk about that. But what I need you to know immediately is this, is that this event, verses 1 through 17, is really the turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's the turning point in the Jews' attitude and, and plans for Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus has been an anomaly. He's been something that has confused some people, mystified others. He's been intriguing. He's been interesting. He's been exciting. But now that Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem and he has done something that that is against the rules, that is against the regulations, that is against their their, uh, laws, now something has to be done with Jesus. And verses 1 through 17 set up what Jesus is going to teach about in verses 18 and following in this chapter. This is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. What I want us to see today is this progression. I want us to see this progression so that it sets up really the rest of the Gospel of John. Because what you need to know about the Gospel of John is that it is not one of the synoptic Gospels. You see, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are trying to do, they're trying to synopsize. They're trying to summarize the life and the ministry of Jesus. Whereas John, John is a gospel that is trying to teach theological and doctrinal truth, putting a spotlight on the truth that Jesus taught, the truth that Jesus lived, and the upsetting of the apple cart of his truth that he came and brought to the Jews. And so, even in this text, y'all, what you need to understand is that there have been months, if not over a year, that has transpired between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. 
Because John is not concerned with bringing to us a chronological event of Jesus' ministry and life. He's concerned with teaching us very important theological truth that should impact the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we live. And so, let's go into this just looking at the progression. We see the physical healing in verses 1 through the 9a, really, the physical healing. And I don't know that we really need to say a whole ton about it. This man is paralyzed. He, he's an invalid. Now, we don't get very uh, much information about him. In my mind, I suspect that he's got some, um, some ability with his hands and maybe with his arms and possibly he doesn't have any use of his legs because of what he says. He says, you know, before I can actually get into the pool, somebody else gets in before me. So somehow it would take him some time to get over by himself, but he could apparently make his way over there. He's just always too slow to get there before someone else does. And the superstition was whoever's first in the pool is going to be the one who gets healed. And so here you have this man who is an invalid. He's struggling physically. And I think we want to just enter into his suffering. We want to enter into his suffering. We don't know how he became an invalid. We don't know if there was an accident. We don't know if it was an illness. We don't know that he, if, if he caught something that produced an illness or a disease in him that made him invalid. But this is the fact. For 38 years... This man has been paralyzed for 38 years. I have a friend from my hometown, next door neighbor, who has not been able to get out of the bed for over 30 years. He has the use of one muscle group in his whole body, and it's his eyes. He can blink his eyes. He is completely paralyzed in this bed and dependent on everyone else to do for him. This man was a great athlete. He was an, played all three sports, was, was an, an incredible man, an incredible man by anyone's standards. But he got a disease, and for the last 30 years, He's been confined to a bed and can only blink his eyes. As I was reading this story over and over this week, it made me think about my friend and the kind of struggle it is to daily live with paralysis, to daily live dependent on other people and their mercy on you and their grace toward you and their work toward you. And some of you know what it's like to live with a disease. Some of you know what it's like to have an illness. Some of you know what it's like to be restricted and to struggle physically. And some of you even know the pain of having to depend on other people to get what you need to live and to be sustained. But I think we would do a grave injustice to understanding this text and understanding what Jesus wants to teach us if we don't just pause for a moment and just try to enter in emotionally to the kind of despair and the kind of mindset that a paralyzed man in Jerusalem in the first century, without 21st century medicine, without 21st century technology, 
without 21st century sensibilities and in a, in a situation, in a city where if you were paralyzed, if you were invalid, if you were blind, if you were lame, or if you were a leper, you weren't just considered somebody who was struggling, you were considered religiously and spiritually what? Unclean. So you have this man who's an invalid, 38 years, struggling, and everybody around him thinks, I can't be around him. Try that on for size. Can you imagine, can you at least tap a little bit into the kind of attitude, the kind of despair, the low ebb excitement about living that somebody in that scenario could possibly have? That's likely where this man is. And then, Jesus walks up into Jerusalem because there's a feast. We don't know what feast it is, possibly the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus walks up and he doesn't, he doesn't speak loudly and boldly to all of the lame and all of the crippled and all of the blind and, and, and all of the deaf. If he did, if he wasn't singling out this one individual man, don't you know, isn't this beautiful about our Savior, that if Jesus had simply said, get up, take up your mat and walk, all hundreds of everybody in that group would get up and take up their mat and walk. That's the power of Jesus. It's like in John chapter 11 when Jesus is confronted with the tomb of Lazarus. You know, if, if Jesus doesn't say, Lazarus, come forth, then there would have been hundreds of people raised from the dead that day and walked out because Jesus has the power to raise the dead and heal the sick at the sound of his voice. But here, he goes specifically to this man and asks him the question, do you want to be healed? And the man, because he has this low ebb attitude about life, he's just like, I, eh, I, can't, I can't get over there. Notice that Jesus doesn't see his faith and heal him. Notice that he doesn't see in this man something of redeemable value. Trust, confidence, excitement, despair, anything. There's nothing intrinsically about this man that causes Jesus to do anything. It's simply Jesus sees him, knows his condition, and says, get up, take up your mat and walk. Church, can, can I just press the pause button for a moment on the message and say, a month ago, I read an article by Benny Hinn's nephew. His name is Costi Hinn. And he said that he lived the life of luxury for a number of years being the nephew of Benny Hinn. He said, being in Benny Hinn's family is like being in the hybrid of royalty and mafia at the same time. He said that they would travel all over the world, the Swiss Alps, Australia, um, off the, the coast in, in Athens, Greece, in $25,000 a night hotel rooms in Dubai. He said he lived the life of luxury. He was a catcher in Benny Hinn's crusades. 
And as he was kind of tracking with Benny Hinn's ministry, he thought that they were rich and powerful and all of this because they had the favor of God. And he believed that people got healed only because of their faith and because of what they gave to God financially and resourcefully and that God was blessing their ministry because they had all all of this faith. And then he started dating this girl and then he marries this girl and this girl, they begin to read scripture and they're reading 1 Corinthians 12 and then they they, they read uh, John chapter 5 verses 1 through 17 and he said John chapter 5 verses 1 through 17 changed his theology forever. And he says, I can't remember the exact name of the article, he says, um, I'm Benny Hinn's nephew, but I'm not a prosperity theologian anymore. Because he realized that Jesus does what he does and acts how he acts and performs what he performs, not necessarily or unequivocally based on other people's faith or the quality of their trust, but but on who he is and the power that he has. And so now he's pulled out of that and is now in a church more in line with ours because he understands the power of Christ. It's a beautiful testimony. Think about the kind of faith that it would take to leave the life of luxury to go, to leave that to go to, but he says this passage really changed him. Okay, hit the play button again. The physical healing is simple. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk, and that's exactly what the man does. He's immediately healed. He's healed, he takes up his bed, and he walks. Can you imagine the thrill? Can you imagine the feeling? Can you imagine what it was like? Now, what does he do? He just goes and, and kind of meanders around and he goes to the temple. Likely he'd never walked in the temple, so he goes to the temple. So we've got the physical healing and that moves to the religious hostility at the second part of 9 all the way through 13. And this is what I want you to see more than anything else. These Jewish rulers, these leaders, have been around this guy for almost four decades He's not been able to walk. He's not been able to mobilize himself. He's been dependent on everyone. He's been a beggar. He's been struggling. He's reliant on anyone who could give him food, who could give him money, and who could give him transportation. And all of a sudden, they see this man who they've never seen walk before in and around the temple, and the first thing they say is not, Oh, man, what happened to you? Oh, this is so awesome. What's going on? No, the first thing they say to him is you've got a mat in your hand and you're walking around with it on the Sabbath day. Church, be warned here. The most vicious people in the body of Christ are rule keepers who see people who've been transformed and cannot embrace their transformation because that person is not keeping all of their rules. We have in us what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are displaying right here. Your life may be different, 
It may be changed, but you're still not keeping the rules that I think God has set. And so I can't rejoice with you. I can't celebrate you. All I can do is tell you that what you're doing right now is wrong. And if you don't change, we're going to do something about it. That's exactly what they're saying to this guy. This guy is not somebody to celebrate. This guy is somebody to rebuke. I'm telling you, when you have not tasted the grace of God and celebrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you will turn things like the Sabbath up on its head and it won't be a day of rejoicing and a day of worship and a day of love and a day of celebration. It will be a day to put everybody who doesn't keep the rules that you like down and you will keep them out of heaven. You will exalt yourself and you will walk around with a puffed up head and a puffed up heart and you will be no good to anybody but you'll think you're better than everybody that's exactly why these rulers were had this religious hostility to a man whose life has been transformed before their very eyes now they're upset and they're upset at him until they say well there's there's a guy until he says there's a guy who who told me to take up my bed and walk And so they transfer their anger and their hostility off of the man who's been healed onto the man who healed them, healed him. And so the man didn't know who it was. And so he goes to the temple and he's likely worshiping. He's likely just checking things out because he's never had the opportunity to do so. And now we see the spiritual guidance. So we had the physical healing, the religious hostility, and now the spiritual guidance. Afterward, Jesus found him, the man who had been healed, in the temple. And he said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I call this section spiritual guidance because this statement by Jesus, this interaction with Jesus and the man who had been healed is very interesting. And I probably read seven commentaries this week. A commentary is a book by a pastor or a scholar who seeks to explain the text of Scripture. Commentaries are wonderful resources. And if I read seven, I'm not sure that any of the seven did an excellent job of explaining what exactly Jesus was doing right there in telling that man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, to these commentators' credit, If you don't know, you don't need to make it up. But I think that we can stand on solid biblical ground to say that Jesus used physical restoration and physical healing in order to bring about what is way more important to every person's life, and that is spiritual restoration and spiritual healing. And if this man could get physically healed by Jesus and start walking around and interacting with people and doing things that he had only dreamed about doing for four decades, if he could go out and live life to the fullest, so to speak, for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, however many years the Lord may give him, but he would not pause to give God thanks, to worship God, to celebrate God in Jesus Christ, then that healing would be for nothing. You see, because Jesus brings about physical healing in order for us to find our understanding of His power, His grace, and His identity. 
Jesus heals people to show people that He is the Messiah, that He is the King, that wherever He goes, the kingdom of God goes. And wherever He goes, the power of God goes. And so that when He brings food to the hungry or He opens the blind, the blind people's eyes and the deaf people's ears, why is He doing this? To demonstrate His identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so He tells this man, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. You see, if this man receives physical restoration and lives the next 20 years and dies without experiencing spiritual restoration, the worst thing that will happen to him is that he will be judged by Jesus and go to hell and pay for his sins forever because he was not trusting in Jesus Christ as Messiah. It's a spiritual guidance that Jesus is giving to a man that he had already provided physical healing to. He gives one more aspect of spiritual guidance. You see, the man went away and, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus. Now, I don't know how you want to interpret that. I don't know how you want to take that. But the way I take it is this, is that this man is so wrapped up in the religiosity of Jerusalem, and he's so wrapped up in the Pharisaicalism of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and Judaism, he wants to be in good graces with the people that he's been around his entire life, and so he goes and tells on Jesus. Hey, his name is Jesus. This is who he is. And so they find out exactly who it was that healed him. And so look at verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded to their persecution, to their hostility, to their hatred by saying, my father is working and I'm working. I want you to notice a couple of things. What does he call God? My Father. My Father. I need you to know today, church, that no person, no Jew, would dare call God my Father. It was too personal. It was too intimate. It implied a communion that was deeper than what they thought was appropriate. No Jew would say, my Father, and refer to God. But Jesus did, which implies that I have, he's saying, I have a special relationship with the Father. He's my Father. We are in communion with one another. And then he says, my Father is working. And it says, therefore, I'm working. Because whatever he does, I do. And he says that, apparently, on what day? The Sabbath. Church, I know this is, I guess you can call it deep or technical, but if you read Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, when God created the world in six days, after every day, it says, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there was evening, 
and there was morning the second day. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, what did God do? And do you know that it doesn't say, and there was evening, and there was morning the seventh day? Because you know that God has been resting ever since He created the world. And at the very same time, God has been working ever since He created the world to sustain the world, to create us, to sustain us, to oversee us. But there is a resting that the Father has been doing until this very moment. And there is a resting that the Father is now doing because of what His Son has done when He became a human and lived perfectly and obeyed righteously and worked and toiled and worked and toiled to fulfill righteousness and to be holy. He has been resting in His Son ever since. And so Jesus says, My Father is working and now I am working. Y'all have heard me say this before, but when we ask the question, what did Jesus do on the Sabbath? The answer is He did whatever He wanted to do on the Sabbath because He is Lord of the Sabbath. And, and man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And Jesus is demonstrating this. And then the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, in chapter 3 and 4 and on into 5, He says, we now have a rest and His name is Jesus. And in chapter 4, verses 9, 10, and 11, He tells Christians, strive to enter that rest. Get rid of the substance, um, get rid of the shadow, and take hold of the substance. Get rid of the, the, the detailed observance of the day with all of its rules and regulations and embrace the Son of God who is the true Sabbath that we can celebrate and enjoy and worship and love and go out and tell people that we have found rest for our souls in Him. So, when we look at this text, we see the physical healing, the religious hostility, and the spiritual guidance. And this is the big idea. This is the big idea. Jesus is a Savior who works for our good. Jesus is a Savior who works for our good. Jesus is a Savior who works for our good. He works to heal us from our brokenness. He works to heal us from our brokenness. You know, when Jesus lived and conducted His ministry, thousands of people who were sick and infirmed became whole again. They, they, they became restored. Blind people saw, deaf people heard, dead people were raised, okay? That's a fact. Such that, yes, wherever Jesus went, the power of the kingdom of God went too. But you know, every one of those people who got restored... Ultimately, what did they still experience? Death. Death. You see, Jesus works to heal us from our brokenness. Yes, sometimes physically. 
Yes, we pray for God to heal us from a, a, an illness that we have, a sickness that we're experiencing, an infirmity that we have that is really just driving us crazy or driving us to despondency. And James chapter 5 says, yeah, you need to pray that God will bring, give you healing. Ask the elders to come and let them anoint you with oil that you may pray with faith and the prayer of the righteous person with faith accomplishes much. And so we understand that there's a brokenness that we can still cry out for and say, God, help us. But the reality is this, is that Jesus did not come to heal us from our physical brokenness. He came to heal us from our spiritual brokenness. And that is demonstrated most clearly when He is hanging on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. He's come to heal us of our brokenness. And I want you to know that if you've not been healed from your brokenness, if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, if you have yet to cross over the threshold from unbelief to belief, from lack of faith to faith, from lack of love to love for Jesus Christ, I want to beg you today, I want to plead with you, don't wait one day more. Jesus has come to bring you life and life to the fullest. And you are living a minimalistic life if you're not trusting in Christ who has come to bring you wholeness, come to bring you fullness, come to bring you joy, come to bring you celebration. Please give your life to Christ today. But Jesus is a Savior who works to free us from our legalism. He frees us from our legalism, church. I, I doubt, I cannot say unequivocally, but I doubt that any Christian in this building today doesn't have some kind of legalistic bent. I doubt that there's one person who doesn't have some kind of legalistic bent. Now, I think I've probably defined legalism three or four times in the last five and a half years. I just jotted down another just handcrafted definition based on what we see in Scripture, and I wrote it as this. Legalism is man's attempt to keep rules in order to feel worthy, look holy, and please God for salvation. Legalism is man's attempt to keep rules in order to feel worthy, look holy, and please God for salvation. That's exactly what these Jews were doing in John chapter 5. That's exactly what we are prone to do because there is still that vestige of fleshliness and pride in us that says, I'm going to do something. And I'm going to do something so that I can feel better about myself and my performance. Grace is simply not enough for me. I've got to do my part. And legalism is a way to feed our pride because if we create a set of rules that we can live by, and that we can uphold, then not only can we feel worthy, but we can feel better than the people who don't keep our rules. I want to warn us. I want to warn us. Church, let's don't be the kind of people who look down at others who've experienced grace because they don't keep the same rules that we keep. If we do that, we are absolutely no better than these men in John chapter 5. Jesus has come to 
save us from our legalism? You see, even on the Sabbath. Is the Sabbath principle a bad principle? No, it's a great principle. Is the Sabbath rest, resting a day, is that a bad rest day? Is that a bad thing? No, that's a great thing. But what we need to do is to enter into the rest that Jesus has come to bring us so that we don't have to always be looking forward to a day. We can wake up every day and enter into the rest that Jesus Christ gives us on a minute-by-minute, day-by-day basis. Jesus is our rest. Let's find our rest in Him. And then, church, He's a Savior who works to cleanse us from our sinfulness. He's a Savior who works to cleanse us from our sinfulness. This week, there were two different preachers in the state of Alabama who preached the same text of Scripture on the same campus. And you would know both of them if I called them by name. But interestingly, one did not talk about sin, and the other one preached hard against sin and called people out of their sin. Now, one talked about brokenness and struggling and difficulties, while the other one talked about sinning and violating a righteous God and finding hope in a Savior who forgives sin. Now, the fact is we are broken, we do struggle, and we have problems. But the fact is we also sin and our sin violates God and offends God and demonstrates to the world some things that aren't true about God. And so just like Jesus called this man out of sin and into purity, we as a church don't need to say, oh, well, you know, we're not worried about how we live. We're not worried about the kinds of things that our minds entertain or our heart idolizes. No, we are concerned about that because if we're not concerned about that, then we're going to demonstrate to a watching world that God is unconcerned about it. And I can guarantee you this, church, God is greatly concerned with the life that you live, the thoughts that you entertain, and the heart that you have. And He frees us from the bondage to idolatry and sin through the powerful work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ not only died on the cross, but when He rose from the dead on Sunday, on that great resurrection day, He essentially purchased the power for you and I to walk away from sin, to turn our backs on it, to turn our heart away from it, and to walk directly toward God and His holiness and His purity and His love and His mercy that we might be able to take that on and live in that power. And that's why I say Jesus is a Savior who works to cleanse us from our sinfulness. Okay. I want to tell you to do three things. I want to give you three applications from this passage so that you can know, well, what do I do with this? Well, this is not one of the three, but why don't you celebrate? Why don't you celebrate that Jesus is a Savior who works for us? Man, man, He works to cleanse us from our sin. He works to, to, to take away our legalism. He works to, 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 to heal us from our brokenness. Man, He's a great Savior. We're going to sing a song after this sermon. And man, let's just sing with all of our hearts, with voices lifted up, that we have a working Savior who works on our behalf. But here we go. I want you to pray for Jesus 
return. Don't you do that because the Scripture encourages us to do that. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But you realize that when Jesus comes, then, then the kingdom will be displayed universally and all struggling people will find wholeness and all invalids who put their trust in Jesus will receive wholeness and fullness and complete capacity. It will be glorious both outwardly and inwardly. Pray for Jesus to come and manifest His kingdom. Pray. Seriously, pray. I'm not telling you to pray and you write down pray and then you don't go pray. I'm saying go pray. Pray for Jesus to manifest His kingdom. Second, fight. Fight for freedom and celebration and rest in Jesus. Fight for it. Fight for it in how you do your devotions. Fight for it in your prayer life. Fight for it in your conversations you have with your spouse and with your kids and with your parents and with your friends. Fight for the freedom that Jesus came to purchase for you and to give to you as a Christian. Jesus did not come for you to stay in bondage. Jesus did not come for you to, to live a humdrum, low-ebb Christian life. Jesus came that He might be a Sabbath rest for you so that you could wake up every day and rejoice that He is a great Savior. So fight for that joy and that rest in Him. And the third is work. Work. I want to tread carefully right here because theologically I want to be accurate. But when Jesus says, my Father is working, and now I am working, Jesus goes on and He teaches His disciples that His disciples are now His friends. And then He goes on to say, greater works will you do than I am doing because I'm going to be with my Father. And then when He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, now, go and make disciples. He is transferring power and authority to work in the same way that the Father had also bestowed to Him. We're to work. That's what we're to do. And we get to work while we rest in Jesus. Now church, Jesus pursued this one man who needed physical help and He provided the physical help and the spiritual help that the man needed. This week, I met with a woman named Vera Reynolds. She is the director of... A of an outfit over in Hobson City called the Sable Center. You've ever heard of the Sable Center? It's in Hobson City. And every day after school from 3.15 to 5 o'clock, she has 16 children that she oversees. And they come in and they play and she feeds them a snack and she tries to have a lesson with them. And it's a really cool outfit, and there's plenty of room, and she's got all these computers lined up in, in here for the kids to be able to utilize, and she's got other resources and a bunch of books, but there isn't anybody to teach the kids how to use the computer. There aren't people who are coming to read the books and to tutor the kids, and there's nobody else offering 
substantial support to her so that 16 kids can be cared for every afternoon. When summertime arrives, it's an all-day deal. From 8 o'clock to 3.15, she has these kids, and there's over 25 and sometimes 30 of them, and she has them all day long. They don't have a playground. The one area that they do play is at the street corner where there's a street going this way and a street going this way, and they play kickball and other things that they can do, and balls can go out into the street, and kids can get hurt, and there's stuff out there. And, and this is what I want you to know. We have an opportunity to work for somebody. We have an opportunity to help physically and spiritually. She told me that if we wanted to come in and do a weekly Bible study with these children every week, for however long we wanted to do it, we would have the freedom to do that. She said if we wanted to help put up a fence and create a playground that they could play safely out there, then we can do that. She said she would love it just to give these kids an opportunity if we wanted to take their, their kids, all 16 of them, to the Nutcracker in a, a month from now and feed them a dinner and show them a nice time out. That we have the freedom to do that. We have freedom to go and work and serve people who need something physically and need something spiritually. And I want to offer you a challenge. Do you want to join Jesus in His work? Or do you want to talk about it? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You that He's a Savior who works for our good. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to join him in his work. We pray in his name. Amen.